and welcome to our podcast, We Are The Kinotomic, a movie podcast that bridges the cinema nostalgia of the golden age of Hollywood with the explosive modernity of contemporary cinema. I'm your host, Danny, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Nick. Hello, hello, hello! Thank you for joining us again today for another conversation about some of our favourite films. Give us a follow on Twitter, at Kinotomic, if you like film noir. Today we continue our November season with slightly unusual pairing, wouldn't you say, Nick? Yeah, I mean, it, when when we first kind of put these two together, it was more like, oh, these two are in the same sort of genre. Um, and then as it got closer and closer to the recording to watching them too, I got more and more kind of worried that it wasn't going to work. But... I think we kind of pulled it off, so we yeah. shall we shall see. Yeah. Cool. So, shall we kick off with the the sort of chronologically the first film released, which is um, Jean Renoir, uh, nineteen thirty eight film La Bête Humaine. So it's a classic adaptation of Emile Zola's novel. Um, it talks about it, it's about a tortured train engineer who falls in love with a troubled married woman, um, who has helped her husband commit a murder. So Nick, what did you think of La Bête Humaine? Um. So I'm not. I'm gonna. I'm gonna attempt some French word like names, and I'm gonna butcher them. So I apologize in advance for that. Um, but Danny, because you know you speak French, you can, you know, correct Some, me somewhat, somewhat. Um, so this this was not the film I expected it to be, considering oh. when it came out. Um, <laughs> so this this was nineteen thirty eight, and yep. I was not expecting something this dark, sexy, murdery psychotic and <laughs> really quite hypnotic at times um when you know when the film kind of opens on the train going through the french countryside i was i was immediately kind of engrossed uh, i was just i was i was there straight away i was like this is pretty damn cool um is this your sorry is this your fil- your first jean renoir um film no, seen. I have seen uh, the rules of the game or Le Regal de Jeu. La Regle du Jeu. Regle de Jeu. Um, so I have seen that um, a couple of a couple of years ago now, um, and enjoyed that quite a bit, and found that you know to be the masterpiece that everybody said it was. Um, this, you know, this I, you know, I, I hadn't, I hadn't heard this film before um not you know it's not something that's come up on my readings or on my travels that kind of thing so that you know when when you kind of said we should do this film you know obviously like you know i looked up the name of the film and the year it came out and wasn't expecting this um that opening kind of train ride through the french countryside you know uh, there was kind of something really quite unusual about it um seeing you know 1930s france before it was kind of decimated in the second world war yeah. um just there's something quite cool about it um you know hearing the world pass the train by and the two men on the train you know who we aren't actually introduced to by name we just see them 
you know, their faces and them just working together, you know, they, they kind of look at peace, kind of unified by the, the, the track and the journey and, and kind of this kind of this sense of belonging, it feels. Um, and then, you know, we go to the, the then the train, uh, which is called uh, Lison. Lison? Uh, Lison, oui. Lison. Um, yeah, so... And it's, it, it's it, feminine. Yeah, so, yeah, it's, it's feminine. So it pulls into um, the name of that place, which is called Le Havre. Le Havre, oui. There we go. I saw. I told you, everybody, I was going to butcher every single French thing it's I okay. came across today. It's okay. I mean, you, it's um, hard. It's a very difficult language. I've been learning it for more than I care to remember, and I'm okay. still not very good at it. So um, it pulls into the station, and it turns out to kind of this axle that's broken, or it's kind of overheated or something. Um, yeah. And then our protagonist, um, uh, Lantier, um he's stuck at the same at the station he's stuck there at the same time that we meet uh severine and robar robal um robal robo um and then you know we're kind of we've shown the murder of uh grand morin morin um to be i found that that whole bit to be quite well staged um, mm. you know the curtains going down and the reveal afterwards of the body being found it's quite a shocking pose and you you know the, the stain I think you see a stain on the shirt and it's yep. quite you know shocking and, and, and yeah it's it's kind of quite not something I'd expect and that's kind of when, when the film just kept hitting you know de- throwing developments at me you know you know we're already kind of aware of some of the darker impulses of, of Lantier and mm. you know Severine's her um what's we call it <sighs> lack of love for her husband and her her infidelities as it were her yeah. um you know and you know seeing that the, these two kind of come together you know it it's kind of just screams destiny it screams death for them both you know it, automatically when when i felt as soon as they meet i was like these two aren't going to finish the film alive mm. um it just immediately straight away it just signaled danger for them both um and there's something about the men in the film you know they they almost like they needed something else to kind of occupy themselves with to keep them from you know murdering or <laughs> committing psychotic acts you know, with Lantier, it's like he needs the train. You know, he needs his work on the train. With Robot, it, it's almost like he needs the love of another woman to stop him from doing that. Um, and that's kind of what I got from it. Okay. Um, yeah. So, Lantier not... was. Sorry, go on. No, I'm not sure. I'm not. I'm not sure about Robot. I think. I think it was, it was the love of the woman. It was the 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 wanting to possess her, the jealousy that made him kill in the first place. Um, but I think that's I, what I mean. Like he doesn't, she he she he she isn't reciprocating his love. He's not getting the love from yeah. her. Yeah. Okay, so, I see what like, you mean. Like you know what I mean. Like so, he's not getting the love from her, which means that he's gonna you know act out and. The Lantier has the distraction of, you know, going on the train and doing his thing. Yeah. 
with um, his partner, a guy called uh, Pat Keo, um, who's kind of my favourite character through the whole film. Um, and it, yeah, yeah, he was kind of he was also the guy that I felt the most sorry. He was the guy I felt most bad for. You know, I was like, oh, you know, he's beaten up for trying to stop Lantier from jumping off the train, and mm. then it kind of loses, and he loses his what I can kind of infer is like they're almost like they're not to say soulmates, but you know when you have your mate and he's like your close yeah, mate, yeah. And then, you know he's lost his mate, bro, bromance. Yeah, bromance, and you know, and then it's kind of implied that his livelihood's going to go as well, because I kind of gathered from all these, you know, different train drivers and the way they're talking that they all make their money from their, each their own locomotives. Yeah. So he's now going to lose his livelihood, um, because of a woman coming into this world and has kind of just destroyed out all this this peacefulness and tranquility. Like Leontier is able to kind of stop himself from you know strangling that that girl earlier on in the film but he can't stop himself from severine because she's so intoxicating you know yeah um so i you know she walks into this 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 world and kind of just upends it straight away um and she's toxic because yeah because of this I feel like the film is almost like a precursor to noir. It's almost like, you know, because you've, you've corrected me in the past where I've said that noir was like the 30s and you're like, no, it's actually the 40s and 50s. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but but I, I, feel... think, I think it's definitely, uh, yeah. It's a, it's a noir that kind of sets up the, the stage for Hollywood's film noir. Yeah, so that's what I was going to say, like, I feel like this kind of film shows what we'd end up becoming accustomed to later, you know, accustomed to, you know, it has some of the tropes that we see in other noir films and the lighting and the staging is very, very much kind of what we would end up expecting when we think of a noir film. But what sets this apart is that this is a step above that, if that makes any sense. There, I think maybe it's because, you know, the French film industry is behind this and not Hollywood. And maybe because of that, you know, there weren't the restrictions and the studio pressure like, you know, a, a Hollywood director would have. And whereas Jean Renoir has, you know, kind of got his own thing. So he's able to kind of try things that his American counterparts could only really hint at or be very, very lucky in pulling off. Yeah. Um, it's kind of, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm just spitballing, you know, I'm just, a hypothetical kind of thing just the thoughts running through my head so i kind of feel that this film is is it's what's the word it's kind of like uh i wouldn't say a rosetta stone but we are seeing like the tropes and we're seeing like the kind of things that we kind of end up identifying as more later Setting on the mold for yeah so yeah. maybe this this film isn't isn't set out originally to be this is a film noir it's just a film that does that ends up having the tropes almost by almost by accident because this is uh, adapted from a from a book um it was... is from yeah from 1890s um exactly so it's the 1890s book. 1890s yeah and it's um... actually quite faithful to the story um i've started reading it's very difficult to read Zola because it's just very hard he's it's 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 writing that is very dark and heavy 
I mean, um, the, 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 from the dialogue at times, I don't know if it's lifted straight from the book, but the dialogue at times does seem a bit stilted. <clears throat> I don't know if it's because it's kind of lost in translation. Um, you know, with the subtitles and stuff, it did kind mm. of doesn't have a, a poet doesn't have a, a poetry or, or a sing to it. Um, it it does probably kind of... gets lost in translation. Because, yeah, that's what I, mean, I was thinking. And, and being able to understand, I didn't feel I didn't feel it was stilted, but I can probably understand why you you you'd feel. I was actually watching uh, Jean Gabin's performance, and I kind of felt I was kind of trying to figure out what you could find in it that you could object to. <laughs> so I was like trying to understand what you would you'd come up and say, well, I hated it because he was not like that or whatever. Um, so I I think you'd have to bear in mind that in the 30s, people acted differently from now. I mean, like, etiquette has changed over the years as well. Yeah, I don't, I don't have any issues with the performances or anything. I really don't. Um, I thought his performance was 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 pretty damn good, and it kind of sold this the yeah. psycho the psychosis almost that there isn't yeah. underneath him. There is a darkness underneath him. He he sold that very very effectively. I think so. I'm glad that you picked up on it because I was a bit I, that was kind of like what made me a bit nervous. Yeah. Um. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I, I can't. I, if I, I don't know if I have any issues with the film at all. Like, I'm really um, happy that you enjoyed it because it sounds like you really enjoyed it. Yeah, no, I, I really did. I, I did kind of find myself being drawn to it in a weird way, um, and it was like I said, like I wasn't expecting this film from 1938, which is going to sound really, really like shit because you know. Like we live we've been in a doing this for some time, yeah, and know, every no, time no. you're surprised. <laughs> yeah, I know. What, what I mean is, like, you know, we live in a time where you go on Netflix and you see only one film from before 1998. You know, yeah. And, and we always, talk, I always talk about like how, like, you know, streaming services need to kind of expand their library to be late, you know, to bring out stuff that's kind of gone out earlier because you know, cinema didn't start in 1999 with um star Don't wars episode one fat and menace you know cinema didn't <gasps> start then cinema was before all of that you know and <laughs> so yeah. i find myself kind of saying almost on a regular basis on this podcast where i'm like oh i didn't know a, a film from 1938 could do this <laughs> which is you know a, it's really really um a stupid thing to say a for a film student to say <laughs> And B, for, for somebody who loves old films to say, <laughs> you know. Um, so, yeah, I I did really, really enjoy this. And on honestly, like, I, it, it would be kind of pretty high on my list if we were to say, oh, you want to, you need to rewatch a film from the podcast. What would it be? I think this film would be pretty high up. So... Yeah, no, um, I, yeah, I, I'm really, I, really happy. I'm really. I happy found, like I said, I found the film, the plot to be really, really engrossing. I found the filming and the directorial style to be really quite hypnotic at times, and I thought Jean Jean Gabin. Oh, I'm not going to attempt the name. No, that was his, good. That was good. Okay. That was good. I, I thought his performance <laughs> was really, really good. And you said last week. I think you said last week that Simon Simon Simon. Um, like she was really, really beautiful. You might have said that off mic, 
Um, but we, you know, she was pretty damn beautiful and kind of does look like the femme fatale, you know. Par excellence, yeah. Yeah, she really does. Like, she looks like that, though we would She is end the up epitome to... of the femme fatale. Yeah. Um, and I'm gonna. I'm just gonna say it now before we kind of get to it later on. But I see Jessica Rabbit in her. <laughs> um, of course so, you do. <laughs> so yeah, um, not in that. way. I was wondering about that. Not in that way. I just mean like in the way she kind of like has this, like se- I wouldn't say sexiness, but like almost like this hypnotic power about her eyes and yeah. the way she kind of looks. You know, I'm looking at a picture of her now. Um, Simon, uh, Simon, Simon, not not Jessica Rabbit, but just looking at a picture of her now, and, and you know the way her eyes are on her face, you know, it there is a danger to her, and, and when you see, you know, there's that line in in, to, in you know Roger Rabbit where she says, "I'm not bad, I'm just drawn that way." Oh um, damn it! You had to say it first on the podcast. Sorry, it's such a great line. But <laughs> it's such a great line but it, it applies so much to, to femme fatales in film noir and you know these characters they're not they're not bad you know these women they're not bad they just look that way and well i think well, i think written, you'd have to say you'd have to say way. yeah you have to say that severin is 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 quite bad as bad as they go because it, it Essentially, she convinces. Well, her she helps her first her husband to ki- kill a man that she was involved with, and then tries to convince her lover to kill her husband. Yeah. So she's 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 dangerous. She's no good. She's yeah. I mean, I mean that's that's pretty much a staple for for film noir where these women yeah, get yeah, the men yeah. to do these things the, the... for them. <laughs> um. Very much so. Yeah. 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 So no. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Um. Cool. Bravo. Any <laughs> other any any other notes on on uh, La Bête Men? No. No. I. Um. Unless I can think of something while you're while you're talking about the okay. film, then no, I'm okay. Cool. So yeah, I think. I just I'm I'm really happy. Like I said, I'm really happy that you really enjoyed this film. I was I was I rewatched it this afternoon, and I was kind of trying to see what holes you could pick at it and I was like what what could he find that's not good because it's just <laughs> I can't see anything that's not good in this um but, to be honest know, I do that with every single film that I rewatch for you so um, <laughs> um yeah I, like I said it's really heavy stuff like really heavy subject matter um Emil Zola was one of the great naturalist writers probably the first always focusing on the dark side of the human psyche like the pathological the genetic like inherent evil something um illnesses of of it i think the film starts with with a quote about um lantier who says that there was it feels like the residue of of all the drunkards and all the bad men in his family has trickled down to him like the idea of of him inheriting bad genes and there's a psychological nature to him and he has to fight that that beast within him that urges him to kill women when he gets that 
crazy thing, you know? Um, so yeah, speaking of, of genes and genetics, um, I felt it was important to mention that Jean de Renoir, the director of this film, is the son, son of the great painter um, Auguste Renoir. And he makes a cameo because I think he, he a bit like uh, Hitchcock, he makes a cameo. He always plays a character, a small character in his films. Hitchcock only like does like a, a, a silent cameo, like you see him like in the bus or something. Jean Renoir uh, plays someone on the sidelines and this one he plays Carouche. Um, I don't know if you've spotted him. I didn't know. He was the the sort of like the bum, the tramp who gets actually convicted for the murder. Oh right, okay. Yeah, that's that's Jean Renoir. He was in part, um um La Règle du Jeu as well. He was the like the the rules of the game. He was um the guy um I can't remember his name, but he was he he had the bear mask on. Uh, the great Orson Welles thought that Jean Renoir was the greatest film director of all time. So I think, yeah, in terms of like, um, yeah, it's just no one can. Say, I mean, if if Orson Welles says that some, you you're good, you're good. I'm gonna I'm gonna keep a tally compliment. of how many times you you mention Orson Welles on the podcast. <laughs> Uh, it's not I was a bad gonna, uh, thing. It's not a bad thing. I'm just, you know, it's. I was it's trying just... to find a really cool quote from Orson Welles, but I couldn't. I couldn't. I could only find that he thought he was the film, greatest film director of all time. Uh, but I do have, I do have a quote from uh, Renoir about Orson, and I will, I will say it in a, in a moment. But I, I found a really cool quote on on like being a director, and I remember reading about about Renoir when I was studying, when I was doing my first degree in film, and I found this quote and I thought, what a clever thing to say. He said, a director only makes one film in his life, then he breaks it into pieces and makes it again. That's pretty cool. Yeah, so it's just, I I felt that it was really, really interesting, the way, kind of given an insight into the way he works and the way he kind of processes things on camera um so yeah i thought that was really cool and he did he did say something really cool about orson welles and i quote start quote orson welles is an animal made for the screen and the stage when he steps before a camera it is as if the rest of the world ceases to exist he is a citizen of the screen end quote so yeah i think there was kind of a, a sort of reverence between orson and jean renoir and of course, suffice it to say that most of the um, French New Wave filmmakers owed a great debt to Renoir and they've um, said so themselves, especially Buffon. So, moving on to Jean Gabin. Um, I don't know, have you ever seen a, a Gabin film before? I'm not sure. I'm just going to have a quick gander now. He, he starred... Uh, no, I haven't. He did uh, La Grande um, Illusion, The Great Illusion. Which I haven't seen. <laughs> which is another Renoir film, which is also like very much anti-war. We should probably get it on the podcast at some point. Um, he's kind of like the Bogart of, of, of the French cinema. He's kind of one of the greatest French film stars of all time. 
for this film, he learned how to um, run a locomotive. Oh wow! Yeah, he was he was a legend, and I'm I'm glad that you you really liked his performance because I think he was he was very good in portraying like the 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 issues of of being having to show this image of of power and masculinity, but also knowing that you're weak and you can crack at any time and he's trying to hide that i think that's you know trying to tame the beast and putting a, a like a front i think that he did it really really well and i was kind of trying to, yeah i was like he may appear less menacing than the villain in our next film that we're going to talk about but i think in essence they both have to hide their inner selves so to speak yeah that's and pretty... and I, I was re-watching it today, today and I I was it struck me how I don't think there's many scenes in film history more disturbing or troubling and like anxiety inducing than Gabin's Lantier walking aimlessly along the railroad track in the night with like a dead look in his eyes knowing what just happened that he's spoilers alert he's killed Severine it's just oh, it's so haunting I just love that um, and I think that comes very very close to to the essence of the character that Zola wrote in terms of like naturalism and sort of ills of, of, of people so in preparation for our podcast I've watched the remake of, of this film. There's yes, there remake? is. There is an English language remake directed by Fritz Lang. What? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, oh. Okay. Wait, there's more. <laughs> Starring Glenn Ford, okay, in right. Gabin's role, and Gloria Graham in Simon Simon role. Yeah. Right. Do you, can you picture Gloria Graham? Do you remember her? I'm I'm gonna say no for the purposes Ooh! of this bit. <laughs> oh my um, god! I'm going to quote something to you, and you'll have to remember. Okay. I was born when she kissed me. I died when she left me. I lived for a few weeks while she loved me. Oh god. In a lonely oh. place. Oh shit! Yeah, yeah. I've just seen. I've just seen the name in the lonely place, and I was like, "Oh shit!" Yeah, she was in that. <laughs> yes. Okay. So yeah, now that we've got our, our, that out of the way, I do remember her now. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So since we've had that on the podcast, and we, you know how much I love her, I was kind of, I had high hopes for this remake, right? Um. And... Uh oh. Uh oh. Uh, yeah, uh oh. So I found a quote from Marlon Brando, actually, uh, who was offered a role in the film. And uh, Brando <laughs> kind of sums up my, my feeling of, of the film perfectly, right? So you have Fritz Lang directing this remake. And Brando says, and I quote, I cannot believe that the man who gave us the uber dark mabuse. The pathetic child mur murderer in M and the futuristic look at society in Metropolis would stoop to hustling such crap. That's pretty so, good. So, yeah, as much as I love Gro Gloria Graham 
And as much as I respect Fritz Lang, it was not very good. But I think as an exercise, it was quite interesting to compare the original film with this remake because I think that's where the essence of Zola's characters comes to light. I mean, you have the train engineer with a mental issue and he's struggling to, to be like an upstanding citizen and he fails. Um, but it's in, in Renoir's film, it, it's quite well done with there's no sentimentality, there's no embellishments, it's just realism and naturalism. And in it, it doesn't get, it doesn't translate into the English version film. So yeah, if you want to watch it just for the exercise, please, yeah, feel free to do it. But as a film noir, it falls rather flat. I mean, I love Gloria Graham as as, as a femme fatale, but this in this role, she's I don't know. Judge for yourselves, people. Moving on to uh, Simon Simon, uh, who is like the, like we said, the epitome of the femme fatale. I thought she was just like the baby doll look, but killer instinct is just, oh, it doesn't get any better than this, right? Um, we'll get to talk a bit more about her career in Hollywood when we discuss Cat People, which we have um, scheduled for a later podcast episode. Oh yeah, we do, don't we? Yeah. Yes, uh, but I found some really spicy stuff about her are you ready oh bring it <laughs> so legend has it that she served as a muse for george gershwin what yeah um she <laughs> okay. was the she was the she was the patty boyd before patty boyd was patty boyd like she basically um there's some tunes that uh, gershwin was said to have composed with her in mind and uh, also, also, she had a, an affair. Well, she had many affairs, and there's a legend that she had a golden key to her bedroom that she used to give to various men. <laughs> she had an affair with the famous um, World War II spy, Dusko Popov, who was Yugoslavian and thought by the Germans to be a spy for them, but in fact, he was a spy for the British. Popov was also uh, so was a very successful double agent, agent and a very well known ladies' man. You see where I'm going with this? Yeah, I am. So he was also acquainted with Ian Fleming, who later used Popov as the basis for James Bond. So Simone Simon was kind the of like the Bond, Bond girl. the original Bond girl. <laughs> so so we have her to thank for. Denise Richards in Tomorrow Never Dies. Yeah. Oh, God. Did I? No, I don't think I've ever seen that. So, yeah, I think she made for a great Never Was Bond Girl, a great first femme fatale. And I think, like I said, I think this one's truly evil, evil not just drawn that way. <laughs> but, yeah, I think. Anything else you would like to add? Yeah, I have a quick amendment. Um, it was actually uh, Denise Richards was the one girl in World Is Not Enough. Um, so the world yeah. is not enough. Yeah, that was the one where he uh, the only jumps thing onto I remember the from that Millennium Dome and he's sliding down the Millennium Dome and he gets onto a boat and it goes on the Thames. Okay. That's the only thing uh... I remember about the World Is Not Enough. 
nope, I don't think I've seen that one. The only thing I remember from that is the soundtrack sung by Shirley Manson. Was it Shirley Manson somewhere? I think it was. No, it wasn't. Well, no, World Is Not Enough was done by Garbage. Who is the lead singer of Garbage? Um, is it that woman? <laughs> is it's, it's Shirley Manson? It's Shirley Manson. Yeah, no, you are right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. So yeah, World Is Not Enough was 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 Garbage, garbage. and it was yeah. yeah. Um, was yeah, the no, film Garbage too? It was. I mean, I can't remember anything from it. I remember more about Tomorrow Never Dies because it had um, it had a guy called the the mid villain was a guy called Elliot Carver who was a power mad media mogul who was engineering world events to initiate World War Three. Um, hmm. Yeah, sounds a bit weird. Um, but he yeah. was played by he was he was played by Jonathan Price. I love um, Jonathan Price. Yeah, I need gives, more Jonathan Price in my life. If you want to see Jonathan Price ham up, like he does a really good Bond. I love Hammy. Like, I love Hammy acting. Oh, I really do. do. I really it's, love it's that. It's not. It's I not mean, great. Like I mean, the best the best Brosnan uh, Bond film was was Goldeneye by a long, long shot. I think I've seen that in cinema. Gold, really? Yeah, I'm that old. Fucking hell! 1995 <laughs> that came out. <laughs> I yeah. saw it on VHS. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> recorded, I saw it recorded off of ITV, I think. But um, um I yeah, think, no. yeah, I th- I think I remember some friends took me. I think it was one of my first outings on my own. Well, without parents. Tomorrow uh, to Goldeneye. That's pretty cool. But yeah, no, yeah. tomorrow never dies. If you want a hammy Jonathan Price performance, I really recommend it. Always, it's not great. Always. It's not a great film, but like. It's, it's you had really me. Good. You had me at Hammy Jonathan Price. Honestly, yeah, it's, it's, just, it's Hammy Jonathan yeah, Price. I love. It's him. a really good. Yeah, him. he's like he's a sadistic media mogul who plans <laughs> to like set off World War Three in order to secure secure broadcasting rights to China. I think I think we're kind it's of like, diverted off of course here. Going with starting with like the very first film noir possibly in history, and now we're going to Bond. Yeah. Okay. Well, right. I so see how I see got, how we got there because we have Simon Simon to blame. <laughs> so, all right, I'm gonna try. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna try a world class pivot here. So, in tomorrow Never Dies, you've got Jonathan Price, who is a well known, a very very well known British actor who gives a performance which you don't really see from him. And we are gonna now talk about a film which stars a British actor who gives a performance which you don't really expect from him. Nailed it. Absolutely Good. nailed it. Um, (laughs) that film is of course 1988's uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit from director Robert Zemeckis uh, starring the aforementioned or not aforementioned but the the aforereferenced Bob Hoskins the late great Bob Hoskins um, Christopher Lloyd uh, along with the voice of uh, Charles Fleischer and Catherine Turner among many many others Many, many others. So I have a brief synopsis um, for Who Framed Roger Rabbit. A toon-hating detective is a cartoon rabbit's only hope to prove his innocence when he is accused of murder. Um, so yeah, this is a pretty much a, a quite a violent 180 from what the film that we've just discussed. Yeah. Um, so Danny, what did you think of Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Well... I found a bit. I found it a bit disconcerting when a supposedly film noir 
stars with a five-minute cartoon episode starring a baby. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was just like, whoa. I mean, I knew what the idea of the film is about. And I think there was a reason I steered clear of it all these many, many years. So, um, I think technically the film is absolutely incredibly great. The actors are amazing. All of them. The special effects are just, oh, mind-blowing. The execution is very, very well done. It's, it's, it was just really, really original. I found myself slightly not really invested in the story. And I'm not being evil. I'm just not drawn that way. Sorry. <laughs> That's bad. That was bad. Yeah, I know. I just, I mean, it is without a doubt a very, very good film. Um, um, but when it comes to film noir, I prefer my films more noirish than cartoonish. It's just, for instance, the detective was a bit of a loser, a bit more than just a complete and utter twat. He was Aww. a bit. Um, hey, I'm sorry, but he was, he was broke and he was you know clueless as to what was going on around him he was he, he was a drunkard he wasn't clueless he was just he wasn't sad. clueless he was very sad okay he was a very sad person uh, with a drinking was, problem he was yeah because this is and he was got... sexist and a bit racist well isn't every private detective from the 1940s that's the that's the problem because I think these are like references to racism of the nineteen forties. Some for me, I felt that like they get lost with everything else that's going on. No, I, I I I do agree with you. There were there were, there was like a couple of bits where I was like, yeah, you wouldn't get away with that nowadays. No, it's but, not about film... getting away with it. It's just like, can we talk about it? Can we just? pointed out it just felt like oh yeah just brush past it oh look at the incredible uh, cgi that we've done here where we have all the cartoon characters that are like ever anyone who has been anyone in in the cartoon world together um yeah i i really appreciated the incredible details there was like mind-blowing blink and you've missed it reference to bt barnum in one of the newspaper clippings and i was like whoa we all know, thanks to huge Yakman, who P.T. Barnum wanted to be, who he was, um, maybe in another episode, but suffice it to say, he was not the lovable character portrayed in the film, and it took me a while to remember the film's name because it was such a silly film. Anyway, I, I liked the last like the last third of the film better than the first two I just felt like the middle bit was a bit tiresome but I do I I mean I cared more about Roger than about Bob Carson's character who's named Eddie was it Eddie Eddie, Val- uh, Valiant? Eddie Eddie Valiant Valiant Eddie Valiant um yeah I like the idea of laughter as as the best medicine I just felt like I wanted to give him a cuddle because we all need a bit of laughter these days yeah. And I think Roger was just really adorable. And it was kind of sad to have anyone hurt him. And you kinda of get you kinda of get why um Jessica loves him so much. 
Yeah, she says, um, she says, doesn't she, that he makes, he makes me laugh. He makes me laugh, yeah, of course. I mean, yeah. Uh, I did not expect Christopher Lloyd to be in this, and it was an incredible surprise. It was He was absolutely terrified. Ter- terrifying. <laughs> I I mean, I love him as, as, as a character actor, as, as any kind of actor. And in this one, oh, he was just incredible. He was brilliant. He yeah, was the best this, part of the film. Yeah, because this is... A, this is pretty much a kids film you can pretty much guarantee that kids had nightmares because of christopher lloyd wow um, yeah yeah um i i i was watching and it just made me think of something about i just i might be reading too much into it have you seen oh brother where art thou i have but it's been a long time there's a i think there's a scene when when christopher lloyd shows up and he's wearing glasses and there's a dark reflection and it made me think of the bad guy in Oh Brother Where Art Thou who is following the three guys, the three idiots idiots um through towns and barns and whatnot. Um and there's like he's supposed to be the devil. And I that image stuck in my head and I I felt like the, the, the Coen brothers might have referenced Christopher Lloyd's character. It wouldn't surprise me. Um, with like the the dark eyeshadow, um, um, eyeglasses. So yeah, I laughed out loud. I I felt I had to write it down and and sort of reference it like when uh, when you have Jessica and someone's kind of strip searches her or something and there's like a nice booby trap. I was yeah. just like, that was really funny. Uh, but yeah, the. Like I said, the technical achievement was nothing short of miraculous. Probably as miraculous as getting Disney and, and Warner Brothers characters in the same film. I thought I thought it was really, really good. I loved the... Some of the gags were really, really clever, like the Frank Sinatra sword. <laughs> I thought that was just really, really funny. But I think there was... Ultimately, there was so many details and so many elements that you had to pay attention to that the story got lost on the way um, and I felt it was a bit of a pity. As film noirs go, this is not it. It's it's a film, it's a good film, it's a great film in terms of sci-fi technical stuff, but as film noirs, I'm not, I'm not sold. Except, like, the, the, the exception of, you know, the femme fatale, check. The hat shadow in the window, check. The detective, check uh like murder mystery kind of check but the rest of it is just like whoa yeah it doesn't really stick that much sorry uh, no, 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 but I I, I I did enjoy it i did enjoy it it was just like i don't know if this is like my kind of film noir yeah i honestly like it just i i just had to i had to get this film on this month's noir ember because i feel like it contains elements of film noir but it does something it does other things as well um and i think also like because we've just had our halloween three episodes of halloween and apart from uh the fact that evil dead 2 wasn't the film that danny thought it was going to be you know uh, we were kind of setting ourselves up for a like a pretty downer of a couple, a couple of months. I see what you're doing. You kind of try, try to squ- squeeze one past me, like, oh no, yeah, no, let's was, put a comedy was, in there. Yeah, <laughs> no, it was like it was like it's trying. I was uh, t- trying to like lighten up the schedule a little bit, 
Um, and I, I honestly, I think I think it's kind of worked. Especially, you know, especially watching this film after um, the other one that we've discussed. You're you trying know. to say that my films are too dark and I have no sense of humor. I never said that. <laughs> we, 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 you may have thought it. You didn't have to say it. Um, you may have thought it. I might have implied it, but I never said it. Um, <laughs> you no, didn't um, have to say it. <laughs> no, I mean, I know you got a sense of humour. The amount of times we end up quoting Monty Python in this bloody podcast. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, and I, there was I, much rejoicing. And there was much rejoicing. Um, no, have you, have you any more about Roger Rabbit? Um, no, I'm done with my review. Um, I'm. I just wanted to say that I love Kathleen Turner. Yeah. yeah. And Bob Hoskins. And Christopher Lloyd. So, um, yeah, no, you said that you are kind of amazed that Disney and Warner Brothers came together, which is something, it's it's like it's never happened since, um, especially not to this scale. It might have happened on like smaller projects, but it's never happened on this big of a scale. Actually, I tell a lie. It's happened sort of with Ready Player One and they are linked because Spielberg directed Ready Player One and is the only person to have gotten that film made and he's also responsible for this film being made because it was produced co-production between Disney and Steven Spielberg's own Amblin Entertainment um, which is big yeah go on is is like Zemeckis and Spielberg are like friends kind of made kind of yeah so um yeah no so basically um the film was originally it was it's, it's originally called a book it was originally a book called who censored roger rabbit and it was bought by disney in like the early 80s um and zemeckis wanted to direct the film in the early 80s and disney just said no because you've you've had two box office failures in his first film got a film called i want to hold your hand which is about um some teenage girls trying to go see uh the beatles at the is it the Sullivan Show? I can't remember the name of the Ed that Sullivan Show. show. Ed, Ed Sullivan, Sullivan show, show, yeah. So basically, it's about that. It's about these these four girls wanting to go see the Beatles at the Ed Sullivan Show, and um, he directed another film called Used Cars, which starred uh, Kurt Russell. Both films did not. It, it, they were they did okay, but they weren't massive successes. Did not warrant Disney to be like, yes, here's the keys to do Roger Rabbit. Um, but the film kind of languished in kind of. Don't say development hell, but just kind of trying to work out what they're going to do with it. And it wasn't until kind of Spielberg kind of came on the scene where where it kind of things kind of came together, um, because he was able to kind of broker deals because of his relationship with various movie studios and because of his power as well. Because don't forget, in the eighties and nineties, and still to this day, Steven Spielberg is a complete powerhouse when it comes to his name you know Spielberg yeah. is Spielberg for crying out loud everyone um, knows Spielberg exactly and if there's anybody that's gonna get this film made it's him but Spielberg um between the used cars and this film's release in 1988 um Spielberg actually helped Zemeckis out with in terms of getting getting him a project um I'm not gonna say what that one is because yeah so you had um Zemeckis what came back it? on. So Zemeckis came back on board in in like in the mid eighties in in nineteen eighty five because he had two massive box office successes. One being Romance in the Stone with Michael um, 
Michael Douglas and uh, uh, Kathleen Turner. Kathleen Turner, and the other I one being the Spielberg production of Back to the Future, of starring course. Michael J. Fox and Christopher Lloyd. Um, and Which because of those two mass, yeah, because of those two films, Zemeckis was pretty much given the keys then to Who Framed Roger Rabbit, because Spielberg helped him out with his career, getting him the job for Back to the Future. Um, so yeah, Spielberg convinced uh, Warner Brothers, uh, Fleischer Studios, you know, Felix the Cat Productions, Turner Entertainment, Universal Pictures to kind of lend their characters to appear in the film. Um, and then there were kind of like stipulations on how they would appear kind of thing. Um, for example, you know, uh, Donald Duck and Daffy Duck are appeared uh, appear as equally talented uh, dueling pianists. And um, the most famous one is the story that Mickey Mouse and Bugs Bunny share the scene where Eddie Valiant's falling through the air. They share yes. the amount of the exact amount of screen time and the exact amount of dialogue time, so that neither one would, you know, be more powerful than the other, um, which is an amazing thing that they've managed to pull that off. So, yeah, um, th- there was one. There's a couple of notable exceptions to characters that didn't appear. Um, I don't think Tom and Jerry appear, and no, uh, you don't, I don't see, think I've seen you, them. You don't see Popeye either. Um, Popeye is probably the biggest one that doesn't appear. Uh, Casper the ghost uh, isn't in there either. Um, so yeah. Um, was Casper? Because Casper the film wasn't it released afterwards? Yeah, but there was a TV series called Casper the Ghost in the sixties. In the yeah sixties seventies yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, so you know there there are some very famous like cartoon that weren't able to get in the film because the studio said no basically the people that own them and clearly regretted that decision um speaking of regrets um terry gillingham was originally offered the chance to direct um, wow which uh, he later said that he said it was pure laziness on my part i completely regret that decision and to oh. be honest i cannot imagine what that film would look like Honestly, because he's the graphic writer, he's a he's a cartoonist as well. But he has such a weird sensibility. Like, I love Terry Gilliam. Yeah, no, I I do as well. I mean, he's a, he's a terrible I want person to. in real life, but he's like, not a terrible person. Oh, he's come up with some really questionable things. Ah, uh, um, I I I doubt that. Okay, you, I'm going to link you to some articles. Okay. I don't want to get into it on the maybe podcast. You, maybe you maybe he's senile. Uh, yeah, that's the I hope. I mean, Clint Eastwood has also come up with lots of crazy stuff. That who listens to him anyway? Yeah, that's true. Um, well, let's not listen to them. Let's just watch their stuff. Yeah. So <laughs> anyway, um, I could not imagine what Terry Gilliam's uh, version of this film would look like. Um, like I said, this film ended up going to Zemeckis. Um, Spielberg um, wanted originally wanted Harrison Ford to play Eddie Valiant. Um, but because of the film's budget, despite the film's budget being $30 million, which was at that time the most expensive animated movie ever made, um, they couldn't afford him. Uh, Chevy Chase was the second choice, but he wasn't interested. Um, Bear in mind, this was the 80s when Chevy Chase was huge and not a twat like he is now. Um, Bill Murray Hmm. was offered the part, but um, he took too long in deciding 
and he missed out. Bill Murray, uh, he would have been. I mean, yeah, yeah. Um, Eddie Murphy. This is the, probably the one that got me. Eddie Murphy turned down the opportunity because he misunderstood the concept of human beings and cartoons coexisting. Um, there's a there's a great interview he did where he kind of says that he's one of his big studio regrets because you know he was go. He was this is a 1980s Eddie Murphy. Um, so yeah, uh, I would have been quite cool to see him in this role, but we got Bob Hoskins and I'm honestly oh, really great. thankful for it because I think his performance is utterly wonderful. I know you, you said like Eddie Valiant, there's, you know, he's a bit of a sad sack, but he sells it so well. He does. Um, and like when, when he finally gives up the bottle and he, and he, and then there's that amazing sequence, which obviously they use a stunt double, but he does the singing and the dancing. Yeah. And it's amazing because this is the guy that's, that said in, it was, you know, in The Long Good Friday, um, you know, that amazing... Have you seen The Long Good Friday? A long, long time ago. I need to rewatch it. Um, yeah, so, the, you know, there's that, 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 that quote in The Long Good Friday. I think he says, like, Mafia, I shit him or something, or, or something along those lines. Um, and you know, he, he's like a very, very like intimidating character. He's, he's incredible in that film. And yet yeah. like, I remember he here, was like really scary in that. Yeah. He's, he's really, really quite scary like, and intimidating. Scary. But in this, he's just so, oh, there's just something about him. Goofy. That just, yeah. Um, and I think he's a really, really good, a really great, perfect foil for, for the hyperactive Roger. Because it's not the kind of, he looks like a guy who you do not expect to see talking to tunes. No, you know? no, um, no. And there's there's a great behind the scenes video which I shared with Danny before we started the recording, which I'm going to link to in the show notes. And there's a behind the scenes uh, video of side by side of how they shot Bob Hoskins interacting in Toontown compared to what actually happened on set. And I think that's screen. why you see how much talent he's got. Yeah, and you see his commitment to the oh. the physical performance and his commitment to the bit because he is he is on board. He is so on board, and he it was... wouldn't work if if you have somebody who's disinterested with being there. No, um, you could see his dedication there. It was just really, it was really incredible can. to watch. To be fair, I think I would have loved to watch just the outtakes and like the blue screen sc- scenes. Yeah. Uh, because it would just it would put the focus on the performance more than it it did w- w- watching the film, yeah. not to diminish the technical achievement by any means, but because it was enjoyable. But to see the dedication on 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 Bob Hoskins' part was it was really 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 cool. In that behind the scenes video as well, you also get to see uh, Droopy, who is my favorite cartoon character, uh, one of my favorite cartoon characters, and his amazing voice and his deadpan. I love Droopy so much. Uh, he's the lift operator, and he's amazing. Yeah. So, um, hold on, sir. (laughs) Hold on, sir. Um, (laughs) we had so carrying on, carrying on with 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 what could have been casting. Um, Tim Curry originally auditioned for the role of Judge Doom. (laughs) Um, and yeah, wait, 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 but afterward, the producers found him too terrifying. Um, um, and bearing in mind what we got was quite terrifying. I don't I know if we could imagine... get any more terrifying than yeah, what we got. Yeah, but if anybody could do it, it would be Tim Curry. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, he's incredible in I, anything he does. I do wish there was a video footage of that audition because that would be incredible. Um, Christopher Lee was also considered for the role, but he turned it down. Um, John Cleese. John Cleese orig- originally expressed interest, but he was deemed not scary enough. Um, they also looked at Peter O'Toole, um, F. Murray Abraham, and Sting, apparently, um, uh, before they settled with uh, Christopher Lloyd because he'd worked with Zemeckis and Spielberg on Back to the Future. Um, yeah, I think it was perfect. Yeah, so he compared his part as, as Doom to his kind of... He worked. He was the Klingon commander uh, Krug in uh, Star Trek Three, Serge Spock. Um mm. And he said, you know, both characters were kind of overly evil um, and he found them really fun to play. Because bearing in mind, you know, he's Doc Brown, who is like the most lovable character in cinema. And, you know, you cannot not hate Doc Brown, but you can really loathe Judge Doom. Um, And I think that's a really incredible uh, Christopher Lloyd performance. I don't know if you kind of noticed this, but he avoided blinking his eyes on camera. Yeah, yeah, you see him going, like, really, like, staring which at is, you. Which is incredible. I, it's, it's really, really good. Um, So, to kind of move away then, um, as you can probably tell with the plot, it's inspired quite a lot by Chinatown. Um, yeah. And it makes... <laughs> There's the great the great joke where he says, I should have known you were a toon because only a toon could come up with a lousily highway scheme, um, huh. which made me laugh uh, quite a lot. Um, yeah, so um, the film was kind of obviously made before CGI and, you know, digital compositing, com- compositing um, was kind of obviously more widely used, um, you know, techniques that we'd end up seeing... Uh, like like in the aforementioned Star Wars Episode 1, for example. Um, so animation was done using cells and optical compositing. So what basically what they did was the animators and the artists were kind of, layer artists were kind of given these printouts of live action scenes. And then they kind of placed their animation paper on, on, on top of them. And then the artist drew the animated characters in relationship to the live action footage. And in that behind the scenes footage that I the the the, the video, um, you see like the um like the you know the behind the guys grabbing Bob Hoskins' cheek to kind of make it look like he's being, you know, kissed and you know, pulling at his pulling at yeah. him to make make it look as though he's kind of moving around. And you know, like you know there 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 are there there are films which came out in the two thousands which had you know humans interacting with CGI characters and their eye lines don't match. Yeah, um, this very film... sloppy. I've seen it. I think it was Garfield that was really sloppy. <laughs> yeah, Garfield. Um, I don't think I mean, I've seen that. Um, I see. I think I've seen it with someone who really wanted to see it, and yeah, it was not very good. Yeah. So yeah, so I mean, like you know, that that film came out in the early two thousands and had probably much a much bigger budget than this, and they oh. couldn't get the eye lines to match. Yet in this, like the interaction between Bob Hoskins and any of the live action cast and their animated counterparts is spot on. It was it's incredible. Blowing. It was it was really really good. Yeah, I, I could really I could honestly record a whole podcast episode on the behind the scenes of this alone. I'm not going to though. Um, couple of other bits. 
the film was a critical commercial success and it kind of stands as one of the reasons why there was a Disney renaissance in the 90s. Um, bearing in mind this came out in 88, which is the same year as The Little Mermaid. Um, and Die Hard. Sorry? Die Hard. And Die Hard, but Die Hard wasn't responsible for the Disney renaissance. No. Um, it, it's responsible <laughs> Sorry, for the first. Completely... It was the first 88 film that I, I, I thought I could think of. And it's, it's, a, it's a Christmas film. Yeah. Yeah, we're not at Christmas yet, so... <laughs> Almost there. Almost there. Come on, man. Almost there. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, like I said, that the film was a critical and commercial success, um, kind of helped launch, kind of re basically get Disney out of the hole it was in, um, along with the little mermaid because everyone, I mean, if you don't know the story, basically in the, the seventies and eighties, Disney, after the death of Walt Disney had basically had a string of flops um mm. they had these animated films but they didn't do very well they the most famous the biggest flop they had was a black cauldron which is a 1980s animated film which is like super dark um and they spent a lot of money on it and it completely bombed in the cinemas um mm. and then they did the little mermaid because uh, jeffrey katzenberger came on the scene and basically was like we need to do proper stories again and they did Little Mermaid, and because of the success of that, we ended up with the with Aladdin, and then The Lion King, Hercules, Mulan. Uh, what came after Mulan? Lilith Stitch, Empress New Groove. Mm. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So basically, we we ended up with the Disney Renaissance, and and Disney became the powerhouse it is it is today. Um. Not everyone was a fan. Um, every, like I said, everyone, all the critics and stuff, most of the critics loved it. However, um, Chuck Jones, um, who was one of the men responsible for the Looney Tunes, you know, the creator of Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, um, some of the greatest short films of all time. Um, he he was not a fan. He accused Zemeckis of robbing the animation animating director uh, Richard Williams of any creative input and uh, he also said that he ruined Zemeckis ruined the Daffy Duck and Donald Duck piano duel um, that he and uh, Williams storyboarded so Chuck Jones was not a fan of this film um, which is kind of kind of sucks because this film is a loving homage to starts off with a with a Looney Tunes ripoff basically um, yeah yeah so yeah uh, I however do love this film um lastly um i don't know if you know about the controversy around this film um oh. yeah so the film came out on laserdisc which for the um for the people younger than the age of 29 um laserdiscs were basically giant cds um that came out around about the age of just after betamax and just after vhs um, and they were kind of like a precursor to DVD, but they were like massive. They're like the size of vinyl. But anyway, this film came out on Laserdisc, and Variety magazine, uh, Variety News, sorry, first reported in March 1994 that observers uncovered several scenes of antics from the animators that supposedly featured brief nudity of Jessica Rabbit. 
while oh, und- that controversy. Yeah, yes, so while I've undetectable when playing the film at the usual 24 frames per second, the laser disc player allowed the viewer to advance frame by frame to uncover these visuals. Whether or not they actually intended to depict the nudity of the character remains unknown. Um, but I I once dated a girl in college whose dad was one of the animators on Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And I actually Ooh. asked him, because, you know, I love the film, and I actually asked him about it. And he said, like, it was a complete accident. It wasn't something that they thought about because it was at 24 frames per second. Yeah. Um so, you know, it just happened to be one of those things. Um, many retailers kind of said that, you know, within minutes of the laser disc um, release, you know, their entire inventory was sold out and the news kind of ended up making its way onto, onto CNN. <laughs> so, wow. And uh, yeah, so it's this kind of. I mean, to be fair, you couldn't have Jessica Rabbit in that dress wearing underwear. You no. couldn't. No, you couldn't. Um, but you know, it's one thing it happening in in Basic Instinct with with Sharon Stone. It's another thing <laughs> happening with uh, with Jessica Rabbit. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, she's just um, drawn that way. She's just drawn that way. But she's she's incredible. Like, I mean, her, I, I'm no, I'm sorry. I'm trying not <laughs> to sound not to sound pervy on it. But no, she's an incredibly drawn character, um, mm. and the way she's kind of sexualized. Um, kind of the, these exaggerated features, obviously in the real world, just would not look right. I mean, there was a years ago there was like a, a CGI image of what Jessica Rabbit would look like in the real world, and you think, Jesus Christ, that woman needs to go to a hospital. But <laughs> you know, in in cartoon form, it's like it's a sexualized. It's almost like I don't say a purity, but it's almost like this is what almost like the the, the masculine. And so the, the the heterosexual kind of norm fantasy looks like is Jessica <laughs> Rabbit. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I do. I yeah. think I read somewhere that Bob Hoskin was 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 directed to imagine like the really high highly sexual woman, and I think he was quoted as saying that once he saw the finished Jessica, it was much more sexualized than he imagined her to be. She was like more than he imagined, more gorgeous and more like sexy. Yeah, I honestly I can't believe that the animators or the the character designers got away with that in the kids' cartoon. Really, yeah. Um, but you know it. You know she is a femme fatale. Uh, Well, yeah, pretty much. Although she's not really. Well, she's not, but she's kind of she she plays the role of the femme fatale. Where it's like she's yeah. drawn into the heist, but obviously they can't go all of the way with it because it's a kid's film. Yeah, she can't be the killer. She can't be the evil. No, um, no. Yeah, she. she um, I think that's kind of the thing. She, she, she's got you thinking that she's she's the she's the murderess and she's, you know, the woman. But she's been blackmailed to at the end destroy, of the day. Yeah, but she's she loves her husband in the end, and she doesn't want him killed. Yeah, no, yeah, that's that's true. Unlike uh, Severine, oh, who is Severine. who is a murderous fan fatale. Yeah. Um, to finish up, then, I mean, one of my favourite bits in this. Um, 
So the scene where uh, Bob Hoskins goes into the men's room in that giant building, and then obviously the floor isn't there. The split second before he realizes the floor isn't there, on the wall there is a graffiti on the wall that says for a good time call Alison Wonderland in uh, quotation marks. The best is yet to be. Um, it's one of my little favorite bits in that film, um, and it's kind of like a blanket. Like I said, it's one of those blink and you'll miss it bits. Yeah, I think the film was was filled with them because again, there's a lot of stuff that you you if you looked away for a split second, you, you've missed it. Yeah, like um, when when we go to to Eddie's desk and he's had his drink, and the camera pans across to his brother's side, and you see the newspaper clippings, and there's the new book news clipping that says like uh, nephews found out of Valiant, and it says Huey, Dewey, and Louie found, and it's obviously Daffy, yeah. uh, Donald Duck's uh, nephews, um, yeah. which I think you know it's quite. A, I said it's one of those little things. Um, yeah, no, the, the film is the film. I I love it. I really do love it. And I, I honestly, I couldn't believe you hadn't seen it before. But what was what was the main reason that you had you decided not to see this? Um, I think it was just like, why would I want to see cartoons interact with humans? Mostly. Okay. Um, I think you remember when I said before. What was my quote? I don't watch cartoons. You don't, I don't watch, watch cartoons. I don't watch cartoons. <laughs> I'm thir- I'm 34. I don't watch cartoons. No, no, it was puppets, wasn't it? I don't Pup- puppets. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Well, um, yeah. same kind of same difference. <laughs> I mean, I'm just going to... That's just going to give me an excuse. I mean, let's just, let's just say... Let's just say... And I can veto it. Let's just say that this was much more enjoyable than Captain... What was it? Team, Team America. America. Oh, I almost blocked it out in my mind. I was like, is it Captain America? No, that's the one with Chris Evans. Chris Evans. Yeah, no, t- Team America with the puppets. Yeah, no, um. no. <laughs> no, please, please don't don't make me watch any more Team America films. Please. No, 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 no. I'm, I mean, I... I think the probably the next animated film I want to get onto the podcast, um, I think is the Iron Giant. Um, there is some. Japanese, I could live with that. There is some <laughs> Japanese anime I want to get on. Um, well, we'll have, of, that's still we'll, we'll have to negotiate. <laughs> yeah, but I think I think the I think kind of linked to this film and this genre and the fact that you know animated films can do genre as well. Um, I think the uh, a good film to discuss would be uh, Gore Verbinski's uh, Rango, um, which has which has the voice of of Johnny Depp. Is that um, a western? It it's a western, but it has a lot of elements of Chinatown in there as well. Okay. Um, it's yeah, it's a it's a it's a really really good animated film. Very very weird as well. It's got a really weird edge to it, but um, yeah. Okay, so um that would be that for this week then cool so what have we got on for next week our final film noir episode no it's not fine we've got one more left after this we've got we've got two more we, we're, we're on it's four weeks oh. in november Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. yeah so um yeah we have we have two more episodes of of november um Excuse me. despite despite danny trying to cut it down to three <laughs> <laughs> I I'm listen. I could do it. I could do this all day. <laughs> you really could do this all day. 
Um, very good callback there. Speaking so, of Chris Evans. <laughs> so, um, yeah, next week. So week three of our four-week uh, Noir-vember. Um, we are discussing Elevator to the Gallows from 1958, <gasps> directed Yay! by Louis Mal. Louis Mal. Louis Mal. Um, starring Jeanne uh, Moreau. Jeanne Moreau. More French names for me to butcher. And and Maurice Ronnet. And that person as well. And <laughs> we'll be discussing that with uh, 2014's uh, Nightcrawler, directed by Dan Gilroy, starring uh, Jake Gyllenhaal, René Rousseau, and the late, great Bill Paxton. Um, so, yeah. Um, it'll be interesting to, to see how those two films kind of go together. Um, That's, yeah, I'm looking forward to to, to seeing that. Um, oh, not, yeah. Sorry, I just I was just gonna say Nightcrawler's got such a great performance by Jake Gyllenhaal. Um, are you a fan of his? Yeah. 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 I mean, okay. I'm not a big big fan, but he's all right. Okay. I prefer. I I actually. I mean, I'm more of a fan of of Maggie Gyllenhaal. I was to, I was waiting for fair. that. <laughs> of course you were. Of course. I mean, you you're baiting me. <laughs> <laughs> was a little bit. Um, okay, yeah. So that's that's next week. Um, in the meantime, uh, Danny, where can we find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at Kino Joan, and my website is kinojoan.co.uk. And like Danny said earlier, you can find us on Twitter on at Kinotomic and um, drop us an email on kinotomic at gmail dot com. Um, yeah, I I really don't. What do we want to find out from our listeners? Um, actually, that's a really good. I was trying to find out today because I was thinking of Emil Zola and his writing, and I read. I haven't read many of Zola's novels, but I read a um, a novel that came out in 1867 called Thérèse Paquin, and I was trying to figure out whether that is one of the first novels where you have the woman killing the husband with the help of the lover and i think i've asked you this off oh I've, I've texted you asking that if there was a shakespearean story that was kind of similar but i don't think there was as specific as the woman murdering the lover the, the husband with the help of the lover so if you know any literary um gurus out there let us know please yeah well, let us know I, i'd be quite interested to know that as well um you can find me on twitter at nick s chandler and my website is superatomovision.com um i haven't really posted up anything there since like july but i'm planning on i have a week off end of november so i want to try and get some stuff written on there maybe we'll oh nick i know if you've if, if you you've got your um you've got an article you've you've done recently haven't you? Um, I've had a recent article published on the Film Cred website about my love for John Barrymore, and why I think that John Barrymore is the greatest Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde that ever was, and I might have some things in the pipeline, but stay tuned. Stay tuned. So with all that in mind, it's a uh, goodbye and a thank you for listening from me. And a goodbye and a thank you for listening from me. Bye.